Hello, friends. Hello, everybody. I'm LD Madeira, and welcome again to the Improv and Magic Podcast. We've got another great episode today with another fantastic guest. I'm super excited to share that my guest today is someone who is talented, motivating, and quite friendly. Today's guest is Brian Palermo. Brian is an actor, improv instructor, comedian, and science communicator. He's performed and taught at the Groundlings in Hollywood, California, and has performed alongside many well-known comedians such as Will Ferrell, Eddie Izzard, and Harlan Williams. He is also one of the original cast members of The Crazy Uncle Joe Show, one of the Groundlings' weekly long-form improv sets. From his experience as an improv instructor, he created Palermo Improv Training, which is a communications consultancy that uses the experiential learning of improvisational theater to upgrade human performance across businesses, the science enterprise, and sketch and improv comedy. Brian has also appeared on multiple television shows and movies, which include Big Mama's House, The Social Network, Grownish, The Happy Time Murders, and Modern Family. And that's only a partial list. Brian is also an accomplished writer, and his writing projects include Warner Brothers' Hysteria and Disney's The Weekenders and Dave the Barbarian, both created by Doug Langdale. He is also a co-author with Randy Olson and Dory Barton of the 2003 book Connection, Hollywood Storytelling Meets Critical Thinking. I love getting to talk to someone who is enthusiastic about what they do, and Brian certainly is that. You'll hear how excited he is about his improv and acting, and you'll enjoy the amount of love he has for performing and sharing this art form with everyone else. Get ready, friends. Here now is my guest, Brian Palermo. Friends, I am so thrilled to have with me right now the amazing Brian Palermo. How you doing, Brian? I am fantastic, LD. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you so much, and uh, Happy New Year since we are in the middle of January. Yeah, still close enough. Happy New Year to you and yours and all the listeners. How was your holiday? How did you spend your holiday this year? Good, man. We had uh, a lot of visitors. So my in-laws came out for a week, and then we had a, uh, a family of friends from LA who came up for like another five days or so. So we just had a packed house, a lot of fun chaos, and uh, it was good. I was still recovering. Where are you living now? I know you used to live in LA, but where are you now? Yeah. So I'm up in um, the Seattle area, but we're actually on an island in Puget Sound. So we're, um, it's, it's a little, it's not quite rural, but it's closer to rural. Like, so people think of Seattle, that's a, you know, a major metropolitan city. But because we're on an island and there's no bridges, it's only ferry service. There's not a lot of commuters because nobody wants to mess with the ferries that much. So it stays kind of small. Uh, it's placed on Vashon Island. And I, I've only been here two and a half years and I love it. It's, it's so different from L.A., of course. And uh, a lot of nature, a lot of green, a lot of woods and forests. And, and I love it. I love it, love it, love it. 
Well, you know, as I've gotten to learn more about you, you certainly are one of the busiest people that I've met. And I love talking to busy people because I'm always so curious how you manage to balance things out. How do you balance your career, your passions and family? How do you manage to just balance all of that out? Well, I'd love to answer you, LD, but I'm too busy right now. I got to go. Bye. Um, <laughs> it's, it's it's just, you know, it's the hustle and it is the the choice. So, oh, so here's a good example. When we moved up here, uh, we only knew my sister-in-law and her family were the only ones we knew up here. So I wanted to meet, you know, other people on the island and start, you know, building community or just making friends, you know, whatever, the whole thing. So I volunteered for a bunch of junk. I'm on the Ottoman Society. I'm in the, I'm in the, the, the big theater thing on island called Open Space, which is really amazing. I work with this other group called Journeyman, which helps uh, uh, young kids sort of uh, a mentorship program, blah, blah. So I just volunteered for a bunch of stuff. And um, even though, you know, come seven o'clock at night, I, I'd rather sit my ass on the couch. I was like, I'm going to get up and go and do the thing. And, you know, so I make an effort. Uh, but also it kind of is rewarding to me to be busy, you know, a lot of times. And then, you know, there are times that <laughs> you have no idea that I'm just uh, uh, eating, you know, pizza by myself in the garage, you know, so <laughs> it, it, there's balance there too. So I'm balanced with busyness and there's the, a lot of times where it's like, I'm just puttering around in my garden, you know, and it's like, so I balance with that too. So because this is an audio podcast, I kind of yes. want to paint a bit of a visual for everyone listening. I'm right. looking at the amazing Brian Palermo, and I'm literally seeing a big snake behind him that looks like it's ready to pounce on him right at any moment. <laughs> yeah, that is a, a monster that my friend Harlan Williams drew. So Harlan's a big uh, stand-up and, and uh, comic actor guy. Um, you may remember him. He was in a bunch of stuff in the more of the 80s and whatnot. But uh, Harlan's a really uh, talented artist. So he drew that for me one day when we were on, working on a thing. It's like, I'm going to put that in a frame. And I did. <laughs> on the other side, I don't know if you can see because of the glare, but that's a, a letter P from Wheel of Fortune. Because I used to work at Wheel of That was my first day job in LA. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Signed by Sajak and Vanna and you know, all that crap. So um, I worked there for seven years, LD. Um, and I loved it. I love it. It's such a weird little corner of TV production, but I was coming out of New Orleans. When I moved to LA, I didn't know anyone that had any connection in any way to any entertainment industry stuff. So to work at the game show, like, and tell any, tell any grandmother, you know, and they'll go, wheel of fortune, you know? So anyway, that was my, a, a job for a long time. And uh, what else behind me is the crazy, crazy uncle Joe show poster. That was the uh, long form improv set I did at Groundlings for 20 years and it's still going. It's in its 22nd and then a, a family portrait. So that's, and a peacock feather. That's a real peacock feather that we um, harvested is the word that all the, all the hippies use up here. We, uh, we found that peacock feather uh, in our yard because the guy two doors down has domestic peacocks. So the peacocks, really? that's a pretty broad uh, picture. When you have people over, do you ever get asked to turn the pee like in Wheel of Fortune? No, that's a really good no because it's up against the wall, and I get and of course I'm in my bedroom office, so not a, not a, not as many people get the intimacy that you are getting, LD. They don't all get to see my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. So this is actually a good point to transition to where I always like to start off, yep. which is getting to know about your early history and your beginning. So why don't you tell us where did you grow up and what was growing up like for you? 
Yeah. Uh, well, I'm a New Orleans boy. I grew up in a place called Metairie, which is the biggest suburb of New Orleans. So uh, it's kind of a swamp swamp boy by my metaphor, but um, really suburban, you know. And uh, I lived there, went to college at University of New Orleans. So I lived at home until I was 21 or 22 years old. Then I moved out to L.A. where I was, you know, uh, sort of professional career for 32, 34 years, something like that. Um, and New Orleans was great as I got into college. I didn't, I was too shy to do theater stuff. I always wanted to when I was younger, like including high school, but I was too chicken and I couldn't do it. And then in college, it took like one, you know, acting 101 class just to, to scratch that itch. And I loved it, of course. Like, oh, this is fun. And within that class, we had one day of improv stuff. So it was mostly it was like learn a Shakespeare monologue and learn a two person scene you know, from Neil Simon, I'm sure I did the odd couple. And then one day there was like an hour and a half of improv. And I was like, Oh, this is what I want to do. It's so fun. It's so loose. Um, you don't have to prepare. And I'm a very lazy man, LD. So <laughs> I just totally love the improv thing. So from there, I joined a group uh, that was based out of Tulane. Now I went to UNO, but Tulane is of course in town in New Orleans. And uh, they had auditions and I, I, I got into a group there and we played in the French Quarter for, you know, I only played for a couple of months before I moved out to L.A. and then started that whole run. Uh, so that kind of does that touch it? Does that cover it? I think so. Yeah. Um, but I am curious about when you were a kid, you mentioned that you were shy. Were you like a, a very shy kid growing up? I would say normal shy, meaning, uh, you know, I was I was goofy with my buddies, but I couldn't talk to girls. I would never make a joke to an adult, you know, certainly not to a teacher or anything like anybody in authority. So I was, you know, a good little boy. And then around sixth grade, uh, my buddy Ricky O'Neill, I, I, I would I, I would make whatever stupid jokes that sixth graders, sixth grade boys would do. You know, so that's the mentality of, of, of very juvenile. But um, Ricky would laugh. And cry. I would make him cry in class. And that was the first time I realized, like, whatever I'm doing is affecting my friend in a, in a way that is bringing joy. And I was like, what? there can't be nothing wrong with that. So I got yelled at by the teachers a few times for being disruptive. But otherwise, I, that's where I, I learned, like, oh, this is super fun to make other people laugh. And um, I was getting my strokes and my dopamine because it made me feel good to make somebody else. So uh, starting about sixth grade, I became kind of a class clown guy. And um, then I started to, to come out of my shell a bit more, you know, gradually with, with other people and, you know, again, with girls and adults and, and other situations kind of thing. I'm always interested in talking to people who have had that class clown experience, because I remember when I was a kid, I tried to be a class clown and failed miserably because there were always... <laughs> There were always other class clowns that were way better at the craft than I yeah, was. The craft, I love it. <laughs> Nowadays, I think it is a, a craft to be a class clown. Uh, so when you were a class clown, was that the thing that really got you to open up a lot? And what did that do for you as a kid and amongst your peers to be that class clown? Uh this is a good question. I did this, this. This is deeper than I thought. This is much more psychoanalytical than I thought I was going to do this morning. Um <laughs> I think I got some, I know I got some confidence out of it because being shy prior to, uh, it was classic sort of don't make any waves so that you don't get any attention negative or positive. So it was the, was the bad, cause I didn't want negative attention. Like, like most, like all humans, you know, we don't, you don't want to be negatively 
um, uh, sought out or, 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 you know, stand out rather. But once I got some positive standout from being goofy and trying to be funny, that gave me a little confidence to, to try to talk a little bit more or be a little bit more, um, outgoing or whatever it was. So the class clown thing definitely helped me there. Then in high school, I went to an all, all male Catholic school. So I would call it, you know, uh, somewhat repressed, but not, you know, not horrible. But again, I, I had some comfort there with a thousand other dudes and you can make a lot of dude jokes. And, you know, that way, hopefully the, the, the bullies or the jocks won't beat you up because you made them laugh and you're funny. And it helps me fit in with, I, I was on the soccer team, but I was never a good player, but you know, I was fun, hopefully guy. And I was in the, the, the service club and I was in the, I, 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 I participated in a bunch of stuff because I wanted to. Um, and being the class clown allowed me, I think, the confidence to, to, to do that. I'm also interested in how kids use comedy as sort of that defense mechanism, Ooh. that mentality of if I get myself, no one can get me. Was that very true for you in the beginning? Definitely a part of it. And I still use self-deprecating humor. I, I, I enjoy it. But um, in my life, more than my career, I guess, uh, I've used that self-deprecating humor to try to deflect, but I've also used humor, not necessarily just self-deprecating. I, I try to use humor um, to draw in as well and to engage as well. And it probably started with a lot more deflection. Like I, I you know, I, I don't want the negative attention, like I said, but then in some, some point early on, I learned, you know, humor can be used to engage and to bring you closer with people and, and to open uh, sort of a connection with people because everybody likes to laugh. And, you know, I certainly didn't, I didn't make everybody laugh. I, I, I failed miserably endlessly a lot of times. And that's one of the great things about improv is you learn how to, you learn how to deal with, you know, a mistake or a, a quote unquote failure, but it's really just an opening to the next step of the conversation. Um, so at some point I switched from humor as a defense to humor as an engagement um, tool technique. I don't know. I don't know what to, to call it. Um, and, and I, I still try to do that as much as possible. And uh, I try to keep uh, the other person in mind predominantly because um, I don't want to be on all the time and steamroll other people. Uh, if, if, if I can, add some humor to whatever circumstance and make things a little bit lighter, but still productive and still, um, you know, effective, then I, I tend to, to try to use it. I don't always succeed, but that's, that's why I try to use it. If it's, if I, if it's uh, not a circumstance where humor would, would be appreciated then I, I don't, you know, I, I try to control myself. <laughs> you piqued my interest earlier because you mentioned that you wanted to do theater, but you, but you didn't do it at that time. And I'm curious what it was that kind of stopped you from doing it. Was it the shyness or was there something else that kind of held you back from doing it? It was being a human LD. I was afraid if I went and showed myself as an asshole in front, in front of others, then I would be shunned from the, I'd be a social outcast. And then with, that's just, this is I've, uh, evolutionarily adapted for all of us. If, if we were shunned from, you know, the, the caveman crowd, your ability to survive goes to almost zero. Your ability to procreate, which is sex, everybody, that goes to almost zero. If you're if you're kicked out of your social group, then it's extremely negative for you as an individual. So that's where we all develop 
you know, as, according to my, according to an actor's understanding of Wikipedia science, this is how we <laughs> all develop this anxiety around don't look stupid in front of others. And that specifically goes to public speaking, which is still held up as like the number one fear. It's because people don't want to look goofy or, or foolish or whatever in front of our colleagues, in front of our friends. So I, I had that very strong and um, I didn't want to, you know, st step out and, and be seen negatively. I, I keep coming back to that. And, and then somewhere in high school, I, I got over it through repetition. I got a, I, my first job. I worked at Burger King when I was in high school. And you meet, uh, you know, another 20, 30 people that work with you. And then you have to interact with customers. I must interact with thousands of people over several years in fast food. And then I delivered pizza for another three years and other thousands and thousands. And and it was not intentional LD. I wasn't, I wasn't taking these jobs to, to build up my social muscle or anything like that. But I think that was a, a byproduct of it was you just, you interact with like a billion people and you're going to get more comfortable with people. I don't know. Is that, does that, did, did I address it? <laughs> I, I think you did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Way better than Wikipedia, I think. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad I was clear. <laughs> so at what point did you finally decide to dive right into performing? Um, like f in, in college, in college. Okay. So here's, that's the short answer in college. I took that basic class. Like I told you. And after that, my degree is in communications, um, not, not theater at all. So I'm I'm not a classic theater person. Um, but after sophomore year in, in college, I did everything I could in theater. So every elective I had was TV and film and, and stage and uh, like, you know, one directing class, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I was very active in college. So I did several plays and um, all the scenes and, you know, for other people's classes and other people's directing classes. And I did everything I could, TV class, I did everything I could in college. And there, it, it, um, you're allowed to participate, you know. Um, it wasn't like you, you, you did have to audition for a lot of that. But it, you're not auditioning against all the talent in Miami or all the talent in, in Chicago or L.A. or New York. LA. You know, you're you're auditioning against the campus. So I was able to actually get into a couple of shows. Um, so that's when I first started performing. And then when I got to L.A., I immediately sought out improv and uh, was within a month or two was doing improv sets and you know the first one imagine remember your first show or I, I'm, I'm speaking to not just you and i but our, our whoever's listening i assume are improv people i was doing a show like on midnight on on sunday or when it was like a crappy show and nobody's in the audience except your other friends and and uh, various girlfriends and boyfriends and stuff like that but that's where you start getting your experience or whatever so in LA, I was able to perform fairly quickly, but you know, not in a prime spot. And after a couple of years, then I was doing you know weekend shows that were a little bit bigger, and um, and then it was just kind of continued. I don't, I've never stopped. I, I've been doing improv ever since. That's thirty plus, thirty five years, you know. So um, I love it. I'll never stop doing it. It's just such fun and such therapy and such joy. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, college got into the theater stage thing. And then when I moved to LA, um, I got into the improv stage thing and shortly, well, within a few years, I started chasing the, uh, the professional acting. While you were in college, did you have any memorable shows that you really enjoyed doing that ring true to your heart to this very day? Yeah, I got to do American Buffalo, which is a mammoth thing. And it's only a three, three man show. And I was shocked that I got cast in it, but 
I, I was, and uh, I learned a lot. That was that was more of a straight show. There's definitely some humor in it, but it was not about be the funny kid. You know, it was try to try to be a real actor and pull off this character. Um, so that was great. Um, I did conversely a show called the musical comedy murders of 1940 and <laughs> wow that was not a great show but it was a great cast and it was funny and it was broad comedy and it was goofy and i just loved it and i loved it because of all those things the bigger cast it was more specifically comedy blah 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 um so yeah those are kind of two big shows that, that stuck out for my college years so I'm excited to ask this to a communications major. I'm excited to answer it to a person who's excited to asking it. <laughs> Do you feel like it's a good idea to study communications because it opens you up to so many different aspects of show business, not just how to be a stage performer? Yes, yes, yes. A billion times yes, without question, yes. So I got my degree in communication precisely because I did not know what I wanted to do when I grew up. So the, the thing was communications in my mind was so broad that you could do uh, sort of professional audience facing stuff, radio, TV, film, stage, or, and, or lean into uh, marketing, uh, public relations, advertise, you know, whatever. Um, so I thought, okay, that's as far as what I know as a 19 year old, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to aim for this communications degree and just see where it goes. Um, but I never had the intention to be a professional actor because I thought that was completely unrealistic for me. Right. Um, again, I didn't I didn't know anyone in production. New Orleans has had a lot of production in the past 30 years. But when I was there, they, were, they, had, they don't they didn't shoot anything there. It, it was not a production hub. So I didn't know anyone that even was a PA on one set for one day. So um, communication and as it expands to sort of interpersonal communication all the way up to marketing campaigns that you hope to reach millions of people in a, in a, um, in a campaign or, or whatever it might be that I thought would be something I was interested in, which is true. I was interested and I might be okay at, I thought, well, maybe, you know, because I've started to um, sort of blossom out of my shell and I was willing to talk to people and, and getting more and more outgoing as I, as I grew, I thought that was a good mix for me, but I would definitely recommend that degree to anyone because communication is underlying everything you do if it's interacting with another person. Even if you are a skilled tradesman, uh, if you're an electrician or um, uh, a, a cook or a, a bartender or whatever, you've got to deal with other human beings. If you're talking to other human beings, you need some communication skills That'll smooth all the other stuff out. How do you ask for the price that you deserve, the, the rate that you deserve? How do you communicate when there's when there's problems without it being a, a huge blow up? So communication, I thought, was a really broad and uh, strong foundation to then jump into something more specialized later. I didn't know all that when I was 19. I just thought, like, I don't know. I'll do communication. But it worked out that way. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's a it's a really strong uh, recommendation. Do you like the idea of being open to various possibilities? Because certainly you've been able to do so Oh, what are you so asking, much. LG? I'm married, but you are adorable. <laughs> What are you asking? Certain uh, certain possibilities. I cut you off for my bad joke. I apologize. What were you no, asking? no, no, no problem. Uh, because you've been able to do so much. I mean, you've definitely done so well with improv and the Groundlings, but you've also done so much TV and film. And 
of course, on the production side of things, do you like the idea of being open to doing anything that may come your way? Yeah, I do. I feel like if it doesn't hurt others or or myself, I should try it. And um, and and I'm pretty open to to anything. I, I was I, I don't know if if I was telling you prior to we started recording, but I was a tour guide at Universal for a month. I, I always said I worked at Wheel of Fortune. I wrote uh, promos and produced promos for uh, Disney Channel and FX and Sony and a bunch of stuff. I wrote cartoons professionally for three years. That was a great gig. I really love that. Um, uh, you know, so I, I, I put my finger in every pie I was, I was allowed to, or I was invited to, or I just shoved myself into, you know? So yeah, I was very open to everything, especially within the entertainment industry. Cause that's, that's what I prefer. That's what I liked, but I would, I would do, I, I painted sets for one week on a, a Barton Fink, uh, Cohen brothers movie. So I, I, you know, I did, I did everything I could in part to see, well, what do I like? What, what? what would I like to do maybe for another 40 years as a career? So, and I tend to like everything, you know? So um, yeah, I was very open to trying it, even though I was unskilled at all of it at the beginning. Um, But that's another benefit of improv for real life is uh, I, I just felt like I was more open to any possibility, you know? And if uh, someone gave me a chance, I would say yes, you know, the classic yes and, and and sometimes I would do well with it and sometimes I would not, but I would learn. I would always learn. And 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 that's, in, to my mind, the, the best thing to recommend that sort of big yes and mentality to life. And again, as long as you're not hurting people or hurting yourself, I, I say go for it, you know. So yeah, I'm, I'm very open to trying most anything. Well, you've offered me an effortless segue. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So you mentioned that you had that one day in class where you did like an hour and a half of improv. So other than not needing to prepare anything, what was it about it that really resonated with you? Ooh, it was just so live, lively, uh, fluid, dynamic, uh, energetic. The, the, what helped me a lot LD was not having to learn lines. So, you know, and that was, again, that was like a acting one-on-one class. So we weren't, we weren't memorizing, you know, a full script or anything, but that took a lot of pressure. As soon as there was lines to learn, I felt like, okay, now there's a thing I can do wrong. If I get these lines wrong, then I'm going to screw up my partner as well as this whole thing. And I had all this anxiety about like, well, don't get anything wrong. Improv where there is no script you, you can't get it wrong. I mean, you, you, you can certainly have a lot of moments that don't land. And I did, I still do, but I didn't feel like I was messing my partner up because I didn't hit the cue line because I didn't remember the script, you know? So that was one thing that really uh, freed, freed me up, I guess it, it was what that, that made it feel so free and loose. And I love that laxity. I love that levity. I love the the ability to just play the playfulness. Shut up. Every, cut out everything I just said and just replace it with playfulness because you get to play and it's, it's, um, it's easy and fun and there's less judgment to it in my own mind. And I think in the audience's mind, I had a, 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 a very good friend and mentor at the groundlings named Patrick Bristow. And he taught me how to teach. So it, it, the groundlings, you know, you go through, uh, come back to that, but you go through all the classes as an actor. And then at some point I was in the company and they asked me to become a teacher. Well, then I have to go through all the classes 
training how to teach as well. And what Patrick mentioned one time, which I thought was brilliant, is improv's got this benefit of low audience expectation. They, they know you're making it up. So they don't expect you to be brilliant and clever, every word coming out of your mouth, but it's got high audience appreciation. So if you, if you land just a big emotional choice or whatever, the audience is really with you. And I always remembered that. It's like, yeah, they're not expecting this to be perfect because you're completely making everything up in the moment with another brain, another person, and, or maybe multiple other people, you know, if you're working with a, a cast. So, that's really hard to collaborate. And most audience members get that. It's really hard to do. So the expectation is lower and the appreciation is higher when you, when you get something good. And that really unlocked a lot of stuff for me too. Cause I had, I imagine like many of us will relate to the ideas. Like if I'm doing it, I got to do it right. And I got to, I got to, I got to say the funny thing and I've got to be good and I've got to be a talented actor and I can't let down my, you know, my partners. And you have all this junk, or at least I had all this junk in my head. And it's, it took years to, to like quiet that down and just like go play, use all the skills and techniques that I've learned, but go play. When you're on stage, you're playing with your, your friends. And that's what I re- relate to the most. And I just, I love that the most. I so love everything that you're saying, Brian, and <laughs> you're absolutely right about that because I, I'm a, I've been, always been a theater kid. I studied theater in high school and in college, and yeah. when you're going through scripted work, there's a term that you hear all the time, and you, have, you had to have heard this term many times, and now it borders on cliche, which is you have to be in the moment. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah which could be tricky to do when you know what the moment is supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But with improv, you actually are in that moment, which I think makes it so thrilling. Would you agree? Well said. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and really well said. You have no choice but to be in the moment. Or well, that's not true. But you can be in your head trying to write the next line, you know, that you're gonna say after, but as soon as you are in your head, you ain't in the moment because you're not listening to your partner. You're not picking up and observing what they're giving you emotionally, dialogue-wise, space work-wise, stage movement, you know, all of it, spatial spatial uh, relationship, how close we are. And when we are that close, is it close uh, romantically or is it close threateningly? It's like there's a gabillion, <laughs> a gabillion facets to theater and to real life. And theater is trying to emulate some version of real life, right? So there's so many variables to it. If you allow yourself to think about all that stuff and oh, and by the way, how does my, how do my, my ass look in these jeans? What's, what's my hair, you know, and I'm in front of people and human beings who are judging me. Dude, you could get so lost in all that crap that you are not in the moment. But if you're really open to the, the whole improv, you know, zeitgeist mindset, whatever the thing is, I'm not a good, I'm not a good word person. If you're into that, then you could just be in the moment and play. And I don't know what I'm going to say because I don't know what LD is going to say. And as soon as you offer something, I'm going to react to that something that I think really trains actors to be in the moment. That's, it's a great point that you bring up. And that's helped me so much in my professional career. And a lot of my friends, as you imagine, I've got a lot of friends who are deep, deep improv people. And it's helped a lot of them have huge careers to that. And, and that in the moment presence is an incredibly valuable uh, uh, skill that comes from improv. And you know what I also love so much about doing improv, you mentioned earlier about how you were afraid of looking stupid in front of your peers. 
But then when you really get into improv, that, at least for me, that completely switches to now, I hope I look as stupid as possible. <laughs> yeah, I I, I want to look as whatever is called for in the moment, you know, because right. you can be, I, I can't tell you how many times I've played like I'm the dad, I'm the nice guy or whatever. But I've also, I, as many times as that, I played the alien with, you know, laser nipples. And like, you don't know what the, you, you, it's an improv thing. So I love, and that's one of the things that keeps it so electric and fun is because you really just don't know what's going to come out of that moment. And it's great. And you look into your partner's eyes and you say, oh, there's, there's some mischief going on there. What's, what's this going to be? And it's a blast. I, I love it. Do people say blast anymore? I sound like a 1950s guy. You well, you blast. just did. <laughs> I just did. So it makes it real. <laughs> yeah, you're not aging yourself at all today. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> so what was it that took you to L.A.? Um, in the world, I love New Orleans. I grew up there, like I said, and I love, love, loved it. But I did not like the weather. It was very swampy. It was very hot. It was very humid and oppressive. I didn't learn to love nature until I moved out of New Orleans, sadly. My dad was a big fisherman. We went fishing all the time. We went crabbing. We went crawfishing. We did everything that a small boat can handle. But um, And I enjoyed that. But it's just brutal. So I thought, I'm going to go try the beach. My fantasy life was, was the beach. You live, you live in you know, near Miami, right? So yeah. that was my fantasy. It was like, I want to be on the sand with the sun and, and surf and tacos and bikinis and, and volleyball. It's like all that was like my fantasy. So I said, I'm going to go try LA. And, and uh, I, I was already doing some theater stuff in college that I mentioned. So I thought, you know, that'll be in the world of entertainment. So I'll be close to all that. But as I also said earlier, I did not think it was realistic for me to go out there and try to have any sort of career necessarily in entertainment industry. But I thought, you know, if I'm if I become an accountant at a movie studio, that would be more fun than being an accountant for, you know, a steel company or something. So all that went into my my decision making. And I went out to L.A. and um, yeah, and, and all, I always had the 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 fail safe. I was like, if, if I went out there and just totally shit the bed, I'd go back home and I'd live, live with my folks until I reestablished re myself in New Orleans because I can always get a job at a restaurant. I can always get a job, you know, bartending or something, which I did a tiny bit of um, back home. So yeah, uh, all that went through my processing and uh, went out to LA and uh, just stayed out there for 35 years. And had a, I had a great run. I really, really loved my time there. I feel like, Every person who tells their family they want to get into show business always has that talk from their parents. Well, shouldn't you consider something to fall back on? Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I know I got that from my mom, definitely. Yeah. Did you experience that too? No, because I, I, I never told anybody I was going to be in show business. I said, I'm going out to LA and I'll, I'm going to see where I land with my, you know, fresh communications degree. And where, where, where it really wound up landing was at Wheel of Fortune. That was the, the first real job I had. Um, it was my first real job as a, as a human, as an adult, you know, other than it, my first real job that didn't have food service connected to it. So, um, I, and I had no clue I would, I would land there or in any part of TV production. I really didn't know LD. I had the benefit of being ignorant but also not being afraid. It's like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to live on my Chevron gas card. I'm just going to eat pork rinds and beer from Chevron until I figure it out. And um, so that's kind of what I did. But I didn't have 
the fantasy of I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to make my living acting in shows and movies and stuff like that. I, I, I just didn't think that was even a realistic choice. So in that way, I never had quite the same rejection and dejection that a lot of my friends did. I, I had a lot of friends who came out. It's like, I'm going to be the next movie star. I'm like, wow, I, I admire your confidence, your balls and your arrogance and whatever it is. I don't share that. I never did share that. Um, but I started getting a little professional work and then I built a little bit of confidence. And, and then within you know a few years, I felt like, oh, maybe I can play in this world. So when I went out to L.A., it was not to be on camera. It was just to be around, you know, the entertainment and Hollywood industry and see, you know, wh where would I where could I land? And it would probably, in my mind, be more interesting to me for my preference than working in hotel restaurant tourism or in the oil industry, which are the two big things in New Orleans. And I, I wasn't really called to either of those. So that's kind of what what would push me out to L.A. Well, when you talk to people who are, as you described, having the fantasy of being the next big actor or the next big movie star, mm -hmm. of course, one thing that you have to put up with when you want to get into that world is rejection. Oh. Do you feel like because you allowed yourself to cast a very wide net that that kind of helped you not worry so much about being rejected? Without question, yes. Because, and and now, now, let's be fair. The... I was the beneficiary of this looking back on it. But in, in that, in that present moment back then, LD, um, I was really kind of playing small. I mean, I, 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 I wasn't fearing the rejection so much because I didn't put all my eggs in that basket. I wasn't targeting, I will be a TV actor or anything like that. And because I didn't have that as a specific goal, I never felt the rejection or the dejection of not achieving it. Right. So whereas a lot of, a lot of my friends were focused, they were going to get it. They were doing this. They were studying towards it. They were rehearsing constantly doing all that. And I did some of that, but always through improv. I was never doing, I didn't do scene study. I didn't do acting training. I didn't have a real acting coach for decades, that kind of stuff. So I, I was, that's how I got through the anxiety around chasing that sort of an acting dream is I didn't, label it. I didn't call myself an actor until I was in my thirties. I, 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 you know, uh, I was working again at the game show at the car, writing cartoons, uh, uh, stuff like that. I was in and around entertainment, but I was not an actor until I was young thirties or maybe even mid thirties where I would say, yep, that's what I do. I, I, I've now had a couple of years where I've made money, uh, off of that. So I can say I'm an actor now. And I, I, that would always hit my brain. Like, really, are you lying to people when you say that? It's like, you're not, but I was, you know, but it took a long time to get there. But a real fast thing on the rejection thing. So I'm a Virgo. I'm a list keeper. I keep, I keep a lot of data. So over my 25 years of acting, I had 1,700 auditions. That's radio, television, commercial, a little bit of stage, all of it, all of it, anything, industrial film, anything, right? So I had almost 2,000 auditions and I booked less than 5%. So another way of looking at that is I failed to, to get the job over 95% of the time. That's a rejection rate that I think would pummel anybody into depression and making a different choice. But I got there, you know, 
with all these other things, as you said, I was open to all this other stuff. So while I was auditioning, I was still working at the blah, 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 or still, you know, not only a day job, but a, a good day job with the, the game show or whatever. So it made it a little bit easier to take that. And then, you know, I cut to now, um, I was able to make a living off of the last 20 years of it, booking less than 5%. And that, that gives you a scary number of, you know, what you were just saying, you know, every, every parent is going to have that discussion with every child who says, I want to be in showbiz. It's like, okay. Uh, be aware of the reality, you know, is like less than X percent ever make, you know, living off of it and X percent less than that ever make any money off of it. And one, one percent of that X is, is, you know, Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks and, you know, whatever. So it's a, it's a, it's a tough little window to fit into. Um, and I'm just so grateful that I, I, I got a little time in there. Yeah. It's funny People don't realize that when you see a Tom Hanks or a Robert Downey Jr., you yeah. don't think about the fact that for that big yes that they got, there were like 50 or 100 no's behind that yes. Maybe more. Maybe more. You know, um, the, those guys are, are fantastically talented and, and they might they might have got there a lot faster than me. And also, this was my level, LD, is that I was able to to make a living at, with a 95% fail rate. But I, I, I went through ups and downs through my career. And whenever I got really down on, it's like, geez, why am I banging my head against this wall? You know, I, I booked one job in, in, in a year. I can't live off, you know, and whenever I get really down on that, I would remind myself, it's like, okay, if you bring this energy into an audition, you ain't going to book that audition because everybody can feel it and smell it off of you. Right. So, and I would, when I would get in those down moments, I would remind myself and say, okay, look, if you, if you want to stay in this career, you know what you signed up for. I know what I signed up for. I know how hard this is. And it's not all a referendum on talent. It's, talent's got a very small part to do with it. A lot of times just who's in the room, networking, what do you look like? So much of it was, was stereotype, especially when, you know, when I was starting 30 years ago. Um, and I had the benefit of being like, you know, average looking white guy, you know, and, and, and so I, was, I got to play a lot of waiters and stuff um, and smaller roles. Um, but now that's all a little bit different. I think it's much more open-minded casting, but still your, your, your uh, physical appearance is going to be a bit, is going to be a big part of casting. You know, how tall are you? I they, they ask you that at every audition. What's your height? It's like, I don't know. Um, I mean, why does that matter? It's because they want to see what are you going to look like next to the star? If that star happens to be shorter than, then they don't want a tall guy, you know, uh, race, age, size, uh, gender, all, all, all of that crap, you know, and, and a lot of times it's just, oh, you, of course, could do this Oreo commercial just as well as the next 20,000 people that come in the room. But you know what? You've got that mom haircut that says, oh, I've been struggling all day with a three-year-old and I just want a little break of my Oreo cookie and I smile at the end and you've got a high dimple cheekbone and you're my mom, whatever, you know. And you can't control any of that. That's that's completely out of your control. So it took me a long time to learn that too. It's you know, audition, and it it ain't just talent. It's a lot of it is just looks, you know. Um, and that's that's hard to it, you can't fight it. So you got to accept it, or at least I thought that's how I felt about it. So every time I got down on myself, I would say, okay, do I want to keep doing this and keep taking the rejection and keep 
learning in classes outside this, trying to get better, trying to improve my talent, knowing that you may never book another job. And, and that's the big thing is, is I would book a, you saw my resume. I mostly just like little guest stars here and there. And I was very, very grateful and happy and blessed to have those guest stars. But I might work a week on uh, Friends. I did I did an episode of Friends way back. And then, you know, the second they call cut, I might never work again for the rest of my... You've got to know that that's a real possibility. Probably not that dramatically true, but it's a real, actual, genuine possibility. You may never get another job ever. And boy, is that pressure on you when you're trying to, you know, and that pressure comes out in your audition. It's, like, it's all this huge thing, LD. It's this huge, you know, circle of of good and bad. And, you know, it's life, I suppose. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I, I went through a lot of those moments and I learned from others in audition rooms. I was like, wow, that's a friend of mine or a guy that I know because we, we're the same type and we go out for every commercial. And he's just really in a pissy mood and he's really bitter about the blah, blah, blah. It's like that. I didn't want to be that. And I, and I thought if, if I get that bitter, I'm not going to bring my best acting and I'm not going to like myself and I'm not going to like this career. And I'm not going to like, so every time I got close to bitter, I would check myself and say, make a choice. Do you want to, if you're choosing to do this, then choose to go in with joy because if you choose to go in with bitterness, it's, it ain't going to help, you know? So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that you got to learn from the doing as well. Hearing all this is way more therapeutic than you can possibly imagine. Right <laughs> good, good, good. I'm hoping to offer something to, uh, to you and the listeners as well. It feels like it's therapy for me, LD, but yeah, good. I'm glad that you're responding yeah. to it. Um, forgive me, but I do have to ask this very obvious question since you mentioned you were working on Wheel of Fortune. It's not a toupee. It's not a toupee. I, it's just my natural hair. You son of a bitch. I hate you. Uh, I got to ask, what's Pat Sajak like? Oh, Sajak was great. I mean, I haven't seen the guy in 20. I don't, I, it's not like we're friends, but, uh, we, we worked together for seven years, but, you know, Wheel shoots uh, five shows in a day. So they do 39 weeks of original program th uh, a year. That's 39, maybe 40 days of shooting. So I would see the talent 40 days a year. It's not like I was good friends with him. But Sajak, I would always say much funnier in real life than you could be on the show. When you're, when you're really? smarter and funnier, I think, because when you're in a role of, game show host, which I've done a little bit on small, I've done some hosty stuff. You're there to serve the project. And the project is, Hey, welcome LD from Miami. Tell us about you. You know, and you get a couple of minutes of chit chat and then you got to serve the mechanics of, all right, here's the new puzzle. And these are the rules of the game. And this is the prize that you might win. And, and, you know, in a 22 and a half minute episode, cause that's what, you know, 30 minute slots are. You, you've got about 20 seconds of you putting yourself out there. Everything else is serving the, the, the machine, serving the game. So Sajak, I thought was really funny. Uh, um, I, I liked him a lot, but yeah, I, I, it's not like we're buddies. <laughs> I haven't seen him in forever. <laughs> Your number is not in his Rolodex, I don't think. I doubt it. I doubt it. Well, let's talk about the Groundlings. How let's. did you encounter the Groundlings and what was that experience like? Um... Uh, Mostly great, especially looking back on it. But, you know, I'm sure if you'd have caught me in the middle of uh, some classes, it would have been less so. But when I before I moved to L.A., I had gone out to visit L.A. twice. And on one of those trips, I went to see a show at the Grand Lines because by then I had gotten my my improv taste in college. I was like, oh, 
I, I want to go see improv. And I had seen Second City in Chicago on a, on a, on a visit, obviously, uh, once there. And um, I asked her out and I ever said, well, Groundlings is like the big improv thing in, in L.A. So I went and saw a show and I loved it. It was it was great. You know, it's it's re- real uh, uh, sort of high end talent that goes through there. You know, uh, um, so I don't remember who I saw in that show that when I was visiting, but everybody was great. And it also was the first time I saw sketch comedy other than that one show at second city. It was the second time I, I, I guess I saw professional sketch comedy live. I'd seen a lot of, you know, stuff on TV, but um, it all worked. Everything worked. I had never seen a show where every sketch worked and every character and every emotional choice. And they pushed it enough to be funny but it never pushed so much that it was annoying. And that is in my opinion, you know, so everything has worked about it. So when I moved to LA, I knew I wanted to take classes there. So I, that was the first thing I did is I signed up for, you know, basic class or whatever, like within a month of, of being in LA, I was taking that first class at Crowley. So um, uh, they have four class, maybe five classes now um, in the core curriculum. So I took all the classes and, you know, you, you either pass or guess asked to repeat. So if you're, if you're not at a level to handle the next class, we don't put, put you in that next class. We, we, we ask you to repeat until you get your chops up to a level where you can not only keep up with the others in that next class, but that you can actually achieve and you're not going backwards and scrambling all the time. So I took all the classes and if you get through the last one, they might invite you into the Sunday company. The Sunday company is our rookie rookie team that's trying to get into the main company. So I did a year and a half in Sunday and you're doing a show every Sunday and it's 80% new every Sunday. So that means you are grinding out new sketches three or four a week, every week. Um, for as long as you're in that, that, that company, you know, um, and I was a bad writer. I'm still a bad writer. Ellie, I'd have to write 10 sketches to get one that worked, you know, and I'd look at others in, in the company, my contemporaries, like, oh my God, Jim Rash is a, a friend of mine in, in the company. Jim was, um, Dean Pelton on community. If you can envision, envision Jim, everything he wrote worked. Everything he wrote was, was just great. And then, or somebody like Jennifer Coolidge, who's, who's, I would say, I don't think Jen would, would uh, fault me if I said she's not a great writer, but she's a great performer and everything she did worked. And, you know, so I would learn by watching these people and, you know, and others. So I'll be gross and name drop for a second, but it's, it's, it's Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph and Will Ferrell and Will Forte and, and all these people, Chris Parnell is lesser, lesser known, but I love Parnell so much. So I was learning from them while I was in that company. And it was, um, it was just a, overall a great experience, highs and lows for sure. I would have some shows where I was like, Oh, Palermo stood out. And I would have some shows like, like, who are you? Which one were you? <laughs> oh, you were the waiter in three scenes. You know, it's like, so y- y- you get, you get all of it, you get the highs and lows of it. Um, but overall a great experience for me. And I learned a ton and I learned a lot more when I started teaching. So, um, teaching, you know, the old, the old saw is if you want to understand something, learn how to teach it because you need to know it in order to share that with other. So f- 10, 15 years into my, uh, uh, tenure there, my experience there, I started teaching the upper levels, the higher levels. And I learned a lot more about sketch writing and character development and stuff than I did when I was in the company. Cause that's, I was in the company for seven years and then I stepped down, but as an alumni, I still teach and perform and direct and all that kind of crap. Um, so anyway, yeah, I had a, I had a great experience of it, but 
with ups and downs. And, and again, very small percentage of people ever get through all the classes and get invited into the company. And part of why I was invited was not talent, but I was like, I was known as a, a nice guy, a fun guy, not an asshole. Somebody who's a good collaborator. And occasionally I would get a big hit. I always, I always describe myself as like the best bench player. Like I'm not a starter, but I come in and I'm not going to F anything up. And occasionally I'm going to give you a fantastic you're going to get great minutes out of Palermo. That's the way I would describe it. Uh, does that, does that answer the Groundlings thing? I think so. <laughs> I think so. What were some of the things that you learned and took away with you from being a Groundling? Character for sure. Character, because I didn't understand character and comedic character. LD is a whole nother thing because it's gotta be, if you play a character, it's gotta be grounded in something relatable, but then it's gotta be exaggerated to a comedic level. And that is so hard to do, to modulate. I look at Melissa McCarthy, who's another ground, who's a friend. I don't know if I just mentioned her, but so, somehow Melissa does the most ridiculous shit. And I always believe it's like underneath all of that, there's something real there. So she's the annoying woman in the office, but she's annoying because she's lonely. She's just trying to connect. This is just a character who doesn't know how to connect in a positive way. So she's connecting in a horrible negative way, but it comes from this loneliness or that there was always the biggest thing to learn is how do you find a relate, a character that's relatable on some level, but then exaggerate them so that they're funny. So it's a comedic level and that's growling specific. We're, we're entertainment and we're, 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 we're comedy and humor, right? In the past 10 years or so, I've been exposed to a lot of other improv and I love it. And some of it's more theatrical. Some of it's not funny at all. Some of it is striving to be funny. But when it's not, we say like, well, that was more theatrical. You know, Groundlings was funny, funny, funny because Groundlings is in L.A. L.A. is a is a entertainment industry hub and you were hoping to to get seen by a producer or a casting person. or And that did happen occasionally. Um, so there was always an emphasis on we are here to entertain this audience and hopefully I'll, I'll get a guest star on, on according to Jim out of it. You know, what, <laughs> you know, so um, as I learned in the past 10 years or so, not everybody is going for the, the, the laughs and everybody's going for the yucks. And that's great too. I love that. I love to watch, you know, any improv really, if it's done at a higher level, um, doesn't have to be funny. But anyway, so Growlings, I, I really leaned into the comedy there. I learned a lot about writing. I learned about professionalism, uh, how to collaborate with other other people. Oh, that's, that's one of the biggest ones. Because in entertainment, in arts, in theater, we are a lovely crowd that has great creative, uh, uh, you know, outreach and output. And, and we just come up with great, crazy stuff. But a lot of that crazy stuff is not realistic. So it's hard to, to work that into a project that actually produces a thing, right? Working through that, through so many years, through sort of the Growlings filter, you learn, all right, you got to be able to collaborate. You got to be able to write. You got to be able to play straight characters and crazy characters. You got to be able to do it all. And all I learned all that through Growlings. I mean, it was really uh, such a sort of a graduate school level education for me after I had my, you know, undergrad degree. Um, it was a really professional training there and you're just around it. And I learned so much from watching all those people and, and, and all the others that, that your audience won't recognize the name of all these other great people who were also producing uh, material that was like, Oh my God, that was a fantastic sketch. Why, why did that work? 
It was clear. It was a strong choice. The emotional choices were there. There was an arc to it. It's a three minute sketch. How do you put all that shit in the, they do, you know, and, and learning that is incredibly valuable. Let me ask you this. When you're in a scene, whether it's a two person scene or a group scene, how focused are you in trying to make the audience laugh? I'm not. What we try to teach at Groundlings is let the humor come out of the natural interaction. So let the humor come out of relationship and emotion. So um, because I got in with Groundlings early, I did not train with the other houses. I'm a big fan of all of them. Second City, when IO was still around, uh, UCB, I'm a huge fan. Uh, all, all these groups, West Side Comedy and Santa Monica's got a great, I, I love them all, but I didn't train with them all. So I can't speak you, you know, all of us in the improv world know a little bit about the others, but I, I can't speak from real experience. I will say that Groundlings focuses on character and relationship. So when we when we play stuff in improvs or in sketches, that's usually the occasionally there'll be like a, a simple parody or, you know, just a song or whatever. But mostly you're pushing character and relationship. And we want the humor to come out of relatable moments. We want the audience to look at the crazy character and go, oh, my God. My mom is like that. I, the guy at work is like that. I am occasionally like that, right? So we want it to be relatable, but this is a moment, this three minute sketch or scene, this is a moment that matters. So it's a moment in this character's life that everybody gets. You and I are all, we all have moments where we're loving and bitter and grateful and selfish and, you know, all the stuff, the, the way to get, a sort of a uh, comedic character, in my opinion, through sort of uh, mostly growlings, but a little bit of Brian bullshit on this too, is pick a moment, pick an emotionally charged moment and highlight that moment. So you're seeing, seeing a three minute sketch of this is really highlighted of, of Brian's selfish character. And everyone in the audience is going to relate to that on some level because we all have those moments where we are selfish. Hopefully that's not what you're known for in your whole life and 24 seven that everybody would want to you know, stay away from you but it's relatable because we all have that. So that's more what I'm thinking of when I'm doing an improv or a sketch is make this human. I, I, I'm going to exaggerate this moment because this, this is a very big moment for this guy. This character's in, you know, this second of his life is the main thing. That's why we're showing the audience this three minute window of this character's life because this is the big moment. We're not going to show you the three minutes where the guy's making toast and spills his orange juice. That's, that might be also very relatable, but that's not the funny stuff. So I want to start relatable and then exaggerate it. And hopefully if I'm doing it right, the audience generally goes along for that ride. Yeah, I absolutely agree and love what you're saying. And, you know, one thing I often tell to students is there's a big difference between acting as a character and a caricature. Yes. And what I love is you can have the most outlandish character in the world, but what really makes that character who they are, there is a deep center that they have. There is something that comes from the heart. There is meaning. There is reasoning. It's just like when you watch any DC or Marvel movie, you see the villain and they're not the villain just because they woke up and decided they want to destroy the world. Right. There's a reason behind it. Thanos has a very valid reason for wanting to kill half of the world. You know, exactly. Yeah, I agree. And, and it, it's, it, it's kind of easy to say LD, but it's incredibly difficult to execute. I look at Will Ferrell and, and, and Kristen and Melissa and Maya and all those guys and go like, God damn, I wish I could do that. I don't have that skill set, but they, they have a way of 
and and outside of Groundlings, I love Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and and Bill Hader and so many. There's so many good sketch comedians and um, Steve Carell, uh, Colbert, all of them. I, I think those are all second. Whatever people, comedic talents who can have some relatability underneath the crazy are my favorites. And the audience generally goes for that ride, like I said, because it's relatable. Hopefully your audience will, will never be as obnoxious as X character is, but they definitely feel that moment is like, oh, they're acting out of, of defensiveness or they're acting out of insecurity or they're acting out of overconfidence. You know, some kind of human flaw is always a good place to start. And then you blow up. You could blow it up for three minutes. If you blow it up for three and a half minutes, you're no longer believable and everybody hates you. You know, so that, I don't know. Maybe that's the maybe that's the thing is just keep it under three minutes, kids. That's the whole thing. I don't know. One thing that I definitely enjoy is being able to find similarities between myself and my guests. And one thing I definitely relate to you on is that, because you mentioned this, we both learned a lot by teaching improv. Yes. So what did you learn more about improv as a teacher? Um, letting go, uh, going with the flow, really fo- focus on the other, I, playfulness, all, all these things. If I, if I have to... Uh, distill it for these two, I'd say playfulness and focus on the other. So when I first started, again, it was all through my filter of am I funny or am I clever? Am I uh, good? Whatever that would, you know, whatever judgment that is. Um, and it was all about me, 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 me. As, as, as I learned more and more, it's like focus on your partner, make your partner look good. We all know that everybody in the improv tribe knows that phrase, right? Um, and it's easy to hear, again, easy to say, but hard to execute, to get out of your head and really focus on your partner's idea. So my two big things are playfulness and focus on the other person. And when you're focusing on the other person, that that keeps you present, that forces you to listen, that makes you more observant. All the good skills that we practice in Improv 101 are then implemented through focusing on the other. You know, yes, anding their offer. You're not going to know their offer unless you listen to them, unless you focus on them. And again, how are they offering it? What's their emotional state? What character are they coming from? You know, uh, so playfulness and focus on the other are my big things. And the playfulness comes up because when people are learning improv, and we're all always constantly learning, hopefully, but when you're a beginner, say, when you're new to it, it's hard to be playful because you're trying to learn the techniques. You know, I, I I wouldn't say the rules, but, you know, we all have guidelines around it. So you're trying to learn, listen, and yes, and, and, and space work and make emotional choices and make character choices and and don't ask questions and all the stuff that that's a lower percentage choice. And none of this, I don't feel any of this is black or white. You, you may never ask a question, and I think that's ridiculous, but it's a higher percentage choice to make statements and make offers as opposed to just saying, well, what do you think? Uh, what did you bring to what's that thing in the garage? You know, it's not wrong, but it's a, it's a lower percentage choice in my opinion, because you're, you're not driving the scene. You're not making an offer. You're just throwing it right back to your, your partner. So when we're beginners to this skill set, we're trying to learn all the techniques. Once you can get past that a little bit, then you can engage playfulness. And that's where I think all the best stuff comes out of is just being playful with your partner, you know, and and seeing where that gets you. So those would be my big two that I learned from teaching it is, you know, learn the techniques so that you can get to a point where you're playing with it, playfulness, and always try to get out of your own head by putting your focus on the other person. And, and see how can you support their idea. They're going to do the same for you. So it's not as if you're just, you know, 
you know, featuring your partner, they're going to do the same for you. So you're, you're discovering shit together. You're building shit together. Um, so yeah, playfulness and focus on the other would be, I think what I learned from teaching it. How do you feel that with everything you've learned in improv and sketch, how has that helped you as you've been able to branch out in all of these other TV and movie spots that you've done? Oh yeah. I, uh, there's a lot of aspects to it. Um, LG first is commitment. I mean, I mean, I don't think I've mentioned the word commitment in the past hour that I'm, it's you, 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 whatever your choice is, you got to commit to it. That's another big thing. Growlings does um, not, not better than other houses, but I, that's a big thing that we push. You can make the choice to be the, the, uh, you know, the weirdo at the swimming pool, but you got to commit to playing that. And I got to see it in your body and hear it in your voice and see it in your facial expressions. If you commit to it, if you sell it, they'll buy it. And I hate that cliche because it sounds like so fake it till you make it. And and those are helpful to a certain degree. But the commitment, when it, the way I teach it is you are putting every molecule of your body into this state. If, if you're if you're playing, uh, you know, lovelorn, then every atom of your body is lovelorn. If you're playing, uh, you know, confidently carefree, then every molecule of you is confidently careful. If you commit to your choices, that'll take you a long way. So that was a big thing to learn uh, for me. Uh, translating it to professional work is, okay, I've got, I've got two lines on Suddenly Susan or whatever. This is my, my first job. My first job was Baywatch. I take that back. But you got to commit to those two lines as, as, as if it's the whole thing, as if you're doing, you know, a, a monologue in, in a Shakespearean play or you're working with De Niro or somebody that you got to commit to all of it. So commitment is huge. Character translates and a character, a character translates particularly well in commercials. I find because commercials, you only have 30 seconds and, and eight of those seconds are taken. Drano will unclog your, blah, blah. you know, you don't have a lot of time to express character. If you understand character at a level where it's relatable, but then slightly exaggerated for commercial, you don't want to go so crazy. Um, playing character makes you very engaging to the audience. And that's what the client wants. They, you represent the, the product for the most part. So they want the audience to be engaged by you and to come away liking you. And if you can play a character that's relatable, but a little funny, that helps a lot in commercial. I had a I had a very good commercial career for a long time. Oh, 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 um, Stephanie Courtney, who's a very good friend of mine. Stephanie Courtney plays Flo, the progressive girl, right? That is, that's Groundlings 101. That's character right there. And then um, the guy who's her her, uh, her sidekick in the, the progressive campaign who plays Jamie is Jim Cashman, who's another Groundling. Uh, 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 Jan, the Toyota girl, is Laurel Coppock, who's a Groundling. The, the guy that does the the emu, uh, uh, LMU, emu, whatever the fuck, that's yeah, David Lemu, Hoffman. Emu, emu. Thank you. That's David Hoffman. He's a groundling. So it's, it, it's, and even me at my level, I never had a campaign like that, but I, I had two or three jobs where I did six or seven spots that I think that character work really translates to short form, um, very well. So commitment, character, collaboration, all the C's, I suppose, uh, connection with your audience. This is what I learned from groundlings and improv writ large. You know, this is what I've, I've, uh, sort of learned as I, I became a teacher because I've been teaching for 20 years also, you know, um, so it all comes together, but uh, emotional choices, you've got to make an emotional choice. And here's the thing. 
You've got to express that emotional choice in a way that the audience recognizes it. Because if you're doing a movie with Adam Driver and Meryl Streep, you can you can have it all sort of underneath. And if we got a if we got a 90 minute feature that's well written by a great screenplay uh, writer, then you may only have one or two moments with, that you're sort of overly expressing or, or or expressive enough that the audience gets gets what's going on there because everything else supports that in this medium. In a three minute improv scene. You don't have that. I guess it wasn't written by, you know, Aaron Sorkin. It's not produced as it's that you don't have 90 minutes to slowly peel the onion and reveal your, if you make a choice, you've got to make an expressive choice that tells your audience and your, your partners what you're playing, what you're going for there. So sometimes that gets read as, uh, oh, it's too big. It's too over the top. To me, it's like, oh, it's clear. And now you can build upon that next step. You can move to the next step of the scene because it was clear because real humans or don't always express, or they, or they only express in huge dramatic moments. A lot of times, real humans only express emotions when there's a bigger moment. Improv, I find, characters benefit from expressing when it's a big moment to them. So even if it is you spill the orange juice to that character, that's a big deal. Because, oh my God, you know, now, you, now you've ruined the, the, the brunch. Now, now everyone's going to hate us and no one loves our... Whatever. Or you, or you spill the orange juice like... Way to go, Gary! You're 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 working on your uh, motor skill, whatever the f. But it the the moment's got to be meaningful. If the moment's not meaningful to that character, the it's not meaningful to the character to the audience. That was a, oh, that's a good one that I'm going to butcher. If your character doesn't care, your audience doesn't care. Mm. A step beyond that is you've got to show the audience that your character cares. And if you play everything straight and non-expressive, they may not get it. Stepping out of, of theatrical improv for a second, I work with a lot of scientists. I do a lot of training for presentation skills and delivery skills. And I love my science and tech cohort, but they do trend towards non-expressive. They're so focused on information and data and facts and evidence and things and stuff that they don't focus on the humans that they're trying to express that to. So a lot of time, and they're trained to be dispassionate, objective, rational, you know, they're, they're trained to take all emotion out of their delivery. And what that does for the audience is like, well, yeah, people have been talking about climate change for 30 years, but nobody's screaming about it. So it must not be that big a deal cut to where we are in the crises right now. So express the emotion in a way that the audience gets it. And that's verbal, vocal, facial, body language. You're, like I said, every atom of your body should be expressing emotion. So I learned all of that from improv and, uh, and translated a good deal. I, I think a lot of my career, as, as whatever level of success it, it, it was, I'm very proud of it, but it's, you know, it's not like I'm a movie star. Um, all that came from my training with improv. With everything that you just explained, do you feel like that's why improv is a lot more in the spotlight these days? And do you feel like that's exactly yes. why there's a lot more theater institutions that are incorporating a lot more improv in their curriculums? Yes, and they should do so and they should continue to do so and continue to expand it. So I, I teach corporate uh, occasionally, a corporate workshop uh, here and there. I teach my science communication people and all that. 20 years ago, I would have to spend the first five minutes explaining why improv is beneficial at all and why these people are sitting through an improv workshop. Now it's pretty, it's pretty much accepted. It's pretty ubiquitous. People have heard of yes and at least, 
outside of whose line is it anyway? Uh, um, people understand that there's a real skill set that goes with this. And everything that I was just babbling on about, I think, has a lot more awareness and acceptance kind of across, you know, theater people as well as into other spheres. Um, I, I teach, I, I taught for NASA and JPL, uh, Brookhaven National Lab, which is like, these are the two biggest labs in the country. Um, uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium, National Park Service. I do a lot with all these, all these scientific organizations that you would think would be the absolute antithesis of improv. They bring me in because they recognize the value of the skill set. In corporate talk, you got to say it's a, it's a, it's an, uh, a corporate value or a corporate uh, benefit right? Organizational benefit, organizational value. So then they'll, they'll be more open to it. Um, but yeah, improv, you and I know, cause we teach it and we live it and we love it. It's really beneficial for every part of your life. It's not about the, I mean, you could use it theatrically, but it helps you interpersonally when you're talking to your partner, your neighbor, your mom, your dog, your, any, your barista. If, if you're, if you're talking to another human being, Having these skills that come from improv will help smooth your communication. It helps you and that other person get to, you know, the good stuff sooner. It helps you avoid some conflict. It's, it's, it's improv training is just so beneficial across the board. Man, I have to share this story because this is something that resonates yeah. with me so much as a teacher. I remember a couple of years ago in my level one class at my home theater at Just the Funny, I had this one girl. Her name was Susie. I hope she's listening to this. And I carry this Hi, moment Susie. in my heart all the time. Hi, Susie. Um, she was super shy, obviously. But as the weeks progress, she gradually got better and better and better and better. And then cut to the live student show that they do. And she had like a couple of friends that were like seated in the, in the front row. And then at the end of the show, we gather all the students and they get to do like a bit of a Q and a with the, with the audience. The audience gets yeah. to ask them questions about what do they enjoy and stuff like that. And I forget the exact question that was asked, but someone asked a question, Susie comes out and just very confidently just answers the question. Yeah. I enjoyed it because I got to do this and that. And then as she's answering this question, I happened to glance out and I saw that all of her friends in the front row started to cry. Really? Oh, that's so touching. Yeah, because that was the first time they had ever seen Susie with that much confidence before. I just got a little chill. Thank you for sharing that. It, that that's so important too. And it's, oh God. That, and and I've, had, I've had moments like that. I volunteer right now at the high school. We do a little high school improv club. And one of my students, I won't name them, um, first day came up and said, I'm only doing this because of my shyness. Like I'm, I'm kind of forcing myself. And I love that kid. I love that kid. They are not the outgoing one. They are not jumping into every scene. They're not, you know, jumping in with a lot of ideas or whatnot, but they're there and they're doing it and they're learning and they're getting a little better and a little more confident. And I would offer this to anybody in the world, in the history of our species, LD, if you ever wanted to improve your interpersonal communication stuff, take an improv one-on-one class because it's low state. It, it, you know, that's another great benefit of, of improv. Say you go in and you, 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 you mess up the story about the mermaid who's eating a burrito. Who cares? At the end of the day, no one is going to remember that. But the mechanics of getting up in front of other people, listening to other people, specifically trying to connect your information to that last person's information, 
All these skills, eye contact, body language, all these skills are so important. And at the end of the day, oh, so nobody laughed at your line about the clown in the swamp. Who cares, right? You still get, got up in front of others and uh, employed these tactics. And there is a, a, a confidence boost that comes with that. And there is um, so many benefits that come with it. I'm, I'm so glad you, you shared Susie's story. And to hear that the friends were crying in the front row. I've had a couple of experiences like that over the decades, but not a lot. And it, it just tells you how meaningful that was to that, to that woman and to her friends, uh, you know, Oh, that's beautiful. Brian, I got one more question for you, my friend. Shoot. What is it? And this has been an absolutely wonderful time. And I'm excited <laughs> to hear your answer to this question. Yep. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you'd want everyone else to hear? Oh God. Um, one piece of advice, Samuel. Uh, I think it is, if it, if it, if it doesn't hurt others and doesn't hurt you, do it, try it, participate, jump in. Right. Um, that's that's what served me really really well, and I don't know that I got that phrased. I got that advice phrased from anybody over the years, but you know, I I, I picked that up from a lot of people. You know, like jump in and do it, and you learn so much from it. You get so much out of it, and you learn that if 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 you don't, if you say a line that doesn't go over, no one dies. You know, it's it's not the end of the world. So so you didn't get a laugh from the cute guy in the class. No one care. You know, it's like you you'll get the laugh next time maybe if that's what you even care about. But if you're not hurting anybody or yourself, do it. That's the note I give most as a coach too. Uh, is is when I'm watching a couple of students do a scene and they're talking about you know uh, we're gonna cut down the tree. Uh, we're gonna, well, what if that happens? And then what if termites like? And I'll just sit back. And do it. Cut down the cut down the tree and see what happens next. It forces you forward in life. It forces you forward in your in your uh, in your education of of this stuff. And again, this stuff applies to everything in your life. So if you're not hurting anybody, do it. That's I'll also add to that. It's always better to do it than not do it and wonder what if. Yeah, of course. That's a beautiful way to put it. Put that on a mug. I'll put that on my wall. Send it to me. <laughs> you got it. I absolutely will. Brian, I cannot thank you enough. This was a great time and I wish you so much love, joy, and success in your future, my friend. Oh, right back at you, LD. Thank you so much for including me. And this is a great conversation. I'm sorry I rambled so much. I get, I get excited. I love this stuff so much. I um, love rambling. Don't worry about it. Good. Well, edit it down. Edit it down to only four hours before you put it out. Uh, it was great to, to, to hang out and have a conversation with you, LD. Thank you very much, my friend. All right, brother. Have a great one. Bye. Jump on in and do it. Go ahead, cut down that tree and see what happens. You gain so much more by going for it, so just do it. My thanks to Brian Palermo for sharing his time with me today. I truly enjoyed talking to him, and I hope you all enjoyed it too. You can learn more about Brian and his project, Palermo Improv Training, by visiting his website, palermoimprovtraining.com. Find out about how you can learn from Brian how to use improv for comedy, corporate programs, and science communication. And you can find all of his television and film credits at imdb.com. And don't forget to visit my website, togetherbymyself.com, 
to learn about my solo improv show and how you can contact me for shows and workshops at your theater or venue. I appreciate Brian's time with me, and I appreciate my time with you. Thank you for being my friends, and please remember to like and review. Have a wonderful day, my friends, and be sure to come back here for more great fun on Improv and Magic. <laughs>